welcome to Worship from Creef, and I hope you've had a good week. But even if this past week has been good for you, it comes after many difficult months. Some of us will have been disappointed by the news that the level 4 lockdown is to continue for a wee while yet. I know some of my colleagues in ministry are disappointed that although the restrictions that are there to keep us safe, another Easter will be limited. And if we do get together, it will be only in small numbers. But you know, actually, every Sunday is a celebration of Easter. Every Sunday marks the day of resurrection. And so, although this Sunday is the second Sunday in the season of Lent, this period of 40 days and nights marking Jesus' enduring temptation in the wilderness, as the devil tried to deflect him from his journey to the cross, this Sunday lies out with the 40 days of Lent. And so for us, it remains a celebration, a celebration of the resurrection. And so we make the best out of what we can do. We offer God our worship from the safety of our homes, rejoicing that we do so with others who are also safe in their homes where they are. And then perhaps catching up with one another for a cuppa and a chat afterwards. So at the start of our time together today, let's come before God in song. And we begin with that well-known Lent anthem, 40 days and 40 nights.
I wonder if you've ever heard it said of someone they could cause an argument in an empty room. I know I've said that on more than one occasion about someone. And we all know people who at some time or another have said or have done something controversial. And maybe even sometimes that person has been you or me. A reading last week had Jesus saying to his friend Peter, Get behind me, Satan! And that sounds pretty controversial, especially taken in isolation and out of context. Thankfully, it didn't divide Peter and Jesus for too long. Today in our service, we're going to be looking at some of these more controversial statements of Jesus, for there's no doubt that Christ was a controversialist. And in conversation or in debate with others, it is always the person of Jesus that causes the greatest of controversy. It's always the person of Jesus that makes other people uncomfortable and starts them looking for a way to get away. Just think about it. It's hard for us just now to be in any size of group of people, but if you had the chance to try an experiment, it might go something like this. You can talk with a group of people about the church and people by and large don't mind. You could talk about God and, and, and few people will raise any eyebrow. But when you start talking about Jesus, that's when it starts getting a little bit uncomfortable because Jesus' teaching and Jesus' character forces people to take a side. Jesus challenges people to make a stand. He leaves us no option apart from a decision. That fact is nowhere more evident than in this text where Jesus taught, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That's pretty controversial. With Jesus, there is no middle of the road, there's no grey area. You can't, as it were, straddle both sides of a fence. Because with Jesus, it's all or it's nothing. It's life or it's death. You're either for him or you're against him. You either stay or you leave. You follow him or you leave him. Jesus was and still is a controversialist. Luke, in his gospel, tells us that it began when Jesus was just a young boy, age 12. You remember we were thinking about that a few weeks ago, when he disappeared from his family for three days and he was found among the religious teachers at the temple and he was debating with them and they were amazed at the, the debate they had with him and what he said. And the other gospels confirm with Luke that it continued throughout Jesus' adult life. He was in constant debate with the religious leaders of his day. He disagreed with them and they disagreed with him. Now, Mark's gospel is a very good example of this. In the first chapter of Mark, Mark gives us an overview of Jesus' public ministry. And then in the next chapter, chapter 2, he collects together a whole bunch of controversies that are centred around forgiveness, fraternisation, fasting and the Sabbath. And if we read on to the start of chapter 3, we see there's a pattern emerging that goes like this. Firstly, there's a healing story, and it's a story that has a kind of resurrection emphasis to it. Then there's eating wrong with tax collectors and sinners. And then there's not eating at all. And then the story goes on to eating wrong again, this time on the Sabbath. And finally, there's another healing story of the resurrection type. So there is that pattern as Mark has collated these stories of controversy. Of course, there's many more. you find more later in Mark's Gospel. And what's particularly interesting and striking about them is that in each debate, either explicitly or implicitly, Jesus advances a claim regarding his own unique identity. 
the author C.S. Lewis in his book Mere Christianity explains this controversial nature of Jesus. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd be either a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he'd be the devil in hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. But don't, he says, let's come up with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He hasn't left that option open to us. He didn't intend to. You see, Jesus can demand our all because he gave his all in coming to earth. He sacrificed his life for our sins. He chose to stay on the cross when it would have been so easy for him to leave it and to leave us behind. Let's hear these gospel passages now. Mark chapter 2 A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, Take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Once again Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, Otherwise the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields, and as his disciples walked along, 
they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Mark chapter 3 Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So let's look at these verses together. At the start of chapter 2, Mark tells this rather touching story of a paralysed man who was both healed and forgiven. It's one of these very visual Bible stories and many of us will remember it from our childhood. Jesus has returned to the town of Capernaum, which formed a kind of base for his ministry. It's there that Peter lived with his family, and in that home, it's sort of like a church. It's a corporate gathering where preaching is taking place, and all the neighbours and all the folks in the town have come because they're interested in hearing Jesus. They've come to hear Jesus teaching during which some men discover a rather novel way of interrupting the sermon. These men have a friend who has been paralysed and so he can't get around on his own. But hearing that Jesus has been healing people, these friends decide to bring this man to Jesus. They love this man and they believe that Jesus can change him just as we should be bringing the friends that we love to Jesus through evangelism and prayer. Of course, they're unable to get into the house because of the crowds of people already filling it. And so they climb up onto the flat roof of the house and they start digging through that flat roof so they can lower their friend down to Jesus. Now, I'm not sure if they ever fixed that roof properly, because if you go to Capernaum today, you'll see something that looks a bit like a, a spaceship, a flying saucer that has landed over the house. And you can look right down into that house so you can see where Jesus and the townsfolk must have gathered, where the friends lowered their friend that day after creating the hole. To everyone's surprise, Instead of pronouncing the man healed, that would have been rather obvious, Jesus pronounces the man that his, to the man that his sins are forgiven. He says the man is forgiven. For healing and forgiveness were twin blessings that Jesus brought in the messianic kingdom. Now at once, the teachers of the law who were sitting there, because they were interested in listening as well, they were indignant and they began saying, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, Jesus heard them and in reply, he drew a parallel between the two blessings. But he addressed that he had first pronounced the paralysed man forgiven because he wanted people to know that he had authority to forgive sins. And then, as if to illustrate that authority, he healed the paralysed man who got up 
and walked out in full view of them all. I'm sure they, they parted the ways to let this, this, um, this man who had this amazing healing and pronouncement pass through. Everyone was amazed. And I imagine the man going out of that house, walking and running and dancing and singing praise to God. Not only physically healed, but his sins forgiven. Now, other religions have things that you can do to try to earn God's love and God's favour, but only through Jesus can our sins be forgiven. He did it on the cross when our places were, were swapped, were traded. Our greatest need is met immediately if we respond in repentance and faith in Christ. Jesus recognised the faith of, of these friends and, and no doubt the faith of the man who allowed himself to be brought. And he responded immediately, forgiving his sins and healing his paralysis. Our greatest need can be met immediately in the same way if we respond in repentance and faith. Now, sometime later, in his gospel, Luke records a similar incident. Jesus allows a prostitute to anoint him with perfume, to, to wet his feet with her tears, to, to cover them with kisses. And when Jesus declared her forgiven, the guests at the dinner said among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? So on two separate occasions, Jesus forgave people's sins, saying, your sins are forgiven. And in both cases, the bystanders recognised Jesus' words as more than a declaration. They understood his words to be an absolution. And in both cases, the witnesses were scandalised, for they knew that nobody can forgive sins except God alone. Well, Mark then goes on to present a debate over fraternisation, who Jesus spent time with. And in this account, the expression tax collectors and sinners, it occurs three times. Now, tax collectors in Israel at that time were universally disliked, even hated, at least by the local Jewish population in Galilee. Firstly, because the, the taxes levied, well, they went straight into the coffers of Herod Antipas. Secondly, because their work brought them into close contact with the Gentiles. And thirdly, because it was their practice often to extract as much as possible from their victims. You'll no doubt remember the people's reaction the day that Luke tells us that Jesus entered into the town of Jericho and spent the day with the tax collector Zacchaeus. They were scandalised. It was such a controversial thing to do. And here in this context, sinners were not just those who were disobedient to God's moral law, like all the rest of us, but those who, whether through ignorance or through intent, did not live according to the traditions of the scribes. Both groups were shunned by all respectable people who would neither give hospitality to them nor receive hospitality from them, fearing some kind of ceremonial contamination. But Jesus deliberately and freely fraternised with them, having no such fears. And he called Levi we also know him as Matthew, a tax collector, to follow him. And then accepted his invitation to a meal in his house, along with many other tax collectors and sinners. When the teachers of the law objected, Jesus responded to them by quoting a proverb in which he likened himself to a doctor whose ministry was not to the healthy, but to the sick. So that inevitably, he would be found among those who needed him. When saying that he came to call people to repentance, not the righteous, but sinners, 
He meant not that some people are so righteous that they don't need salvation, but that some people think they are. By righteous, here he meant self-righteous. Now, let me give you a more personal example. Neither Elizabeth nor I like particularly going to the doctor. Often we can be quite unwell before the other gets us to admit that we need help. We have to admit to ourselves that something is wrong and that we need help. And then we pick up the phone and make that appointment. And that's true for everybody. Just as we do not go to the doctor unless we are sick and admit that we're sick, so we will not come to Christ unless we are sinners and we admit that we are sinners. Nothing keeps people out of the kingdom of God more effectively than our pride or our self-sufficiency.
Mark begins his account of the third debate by drawing attention to the difference between three different groups of disciples. There are the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees, and he writes that they are fasting, but the disciples of Jesus are not fasting. Now, according to Luke, they, on the contrary, go on eating and drinking. So some people come up to Jesus and they ask him why the other two groups are, are fasting while his disciples are not fasting. Now often in the Bible, God's people fasted immediately before a, a major victory or a miracle or an answer to prayer. It prepared them for blessing. And so throughout the scripture we see people fasting. Moses, for instance, fasted before he received the Ten Commandments. The Israelite people, they fasted before a miraculous victory. In the book of Daniel, we read that Daniel fasted in order to receive guidance from God. Nehemiah, he fasted before beginning a major building project. And of course, as we mark during the season of Lent, Jesus famously fasted for 40 days during his victory over temptation. And in the book of Acts, we read that the first Christians, well, they fasted during decision-making times. So fasting is clearly a biblical and a spiritual discipline. It's taught in the Bible. Jesus expected his followers to fast. And he said that God rewarded fasting. He says that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Fasting, according to the Bible, means to voluntarily reduce or to eliminate your intake of food for a specific time and a specific purpose. Now, it's not that fasting in any way earns us an answer to prayer. Rather, it prepares us for God's answer. And of course, we should fast only if our health allows it. So although Jesus expects his followers to fast, they obviously did not fast as often as other people. And when people came up to Jesus and asked him why these other two groups were fasting and his disciples were not fasting, instead of giving an answer, he, he countered with a question. He asked them, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. Now, we could take this as a proverb about inappropriate action. For example, it would be as inappropriate for us to do this or to do that as it would be for the, the guests to fast during wedding festivities. Now, Jesus says, the bridegroom is with them, so it's a time of joyful celebration. And it would be wholly inappropriate for them to fast at this time. But, he continued, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Now, this word taken or taken away could be an allusion to a violent death. At this early stage of his ministry, Jesus had not predicted his sufferings, but it seems that he had some inkling of what lay ahead. On that day, when he is taken away from them, they will grieve and they will fast. And as we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus assumed that giving and praying and fasting would be a normal part of the Christian life. Not that fasting is always associated with grief. For although in one sense the bridegroom has been taken away from us, in another he has returned to us in the Holy Spirit. And our grief has been turned into joy. That's the joy we share and we celebrate every week. 
So finally this morning, we want to turn to the debate over the Sabbath and what was lawful to do on the Sabbath and what was unlawful to do on the Sabbath. Now Mark, in his Gospel, records two incidents, both of which happened on the Sabbath. The first takes place in some fields, some grain fields, in which Jesus allowed his disciples, as they walked through them, to to pluck some grain from the plant and to eat some of the heads. Now, the law specifically prohibited reaping, harvesting, on the Sabbath. But the oral tradition of the Jewish teachers had declared even plucking grain the equivalent of harvesting and reaping. And therefore the disciples were guilty in the eyes of the scribes of a very serious violation of the law. But Jesus appealed to scripture and he reminded them that when David and his companions were hungry, they ate even the consecrated bread in the temple, in the tabernacle, which was lawful only for the priests to eat. But Scripture did not condemn them, which shows that Scripture is less rigid in its application of the law than the Pharisees were. And Jesus concluded with the great pronouncements, of course, that the Sabbath was made for man, that is for our enjoyment, our welfare, not man for the Sabbath. And he said this because Jesus alone had the authority to interpret the law correctly. The second incident took place in the synagogue in which Jesus on the Sabbath healed a man with a shriveled hand. He told the man to stand up publicly in front of everyone and then he asked the bystanders, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? Nobody answered because there was more in Jesus' question than was at first apparent. He was exposing the hypocrisy. For whereas Jesus was planning to do good and to heal on the Sabbath, they were full of evil thoughts. And as Mark tells us, they began to plot how they might kill Jesus. Now looking back over these four conflict stories which Mark has gathered together in chapter 2 of his Gospel, we see that they not only preserve valuable teaching, but they depict Jesus in his supremacy. We see Jesus as the Son of Man with authority to forgive sin, as the physician of our souls, as the bridegroom who fills his guests with joy, and as Lord even of the Sabbath. There are, of course, in the Gospels, many other occasions of controversy, just like those that we've looked at this morning. But one thing is striking about them all. It's that on each occasion, Jesus advances a claim regarding his unique identity. And so we cannot, as it were, sit on the fence regarding Jesus. We have to be all in or we have to be all out. We must all respond to his claim to be the way, the truth and the life, the only way to God. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, either This man, Jesus, was a madman or something worse. Or Jesus is the Son of God.
There are times in the Gospels when it becomes clear that Jesus' disciples have real difficulty understanding his teaching. As we've seen today, sometimes it because he was so controversial. But always at these times, he was advancing the claim regarding his own unique identity. Or think of the story we read last week when Jesus spoke very openly about what lay ahead of him and afterwards Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter in that occasion was clear that death and resurrection were not part of Jesus' future and as he speaks it's equally clear that he has not yet understood the way that Jesus must take. He's not understood what must be won for us on the cross. There are times in the past months when all of us have had real difficulty in understanding the challenges that are faced within our society and around the globe. We have been unclear as to what the future holds and the path that needs to be taken. And in all of this, we have not been alone. As the gospel unfolds, Jesus gathers the crowds around him and invites them to take up their cross and to follow him. As you and I continue to journey into the future and follow the path taken by Jesus, we know that we are not alone. We journey in the way of the cross. And as we've seen today, exemplified in the healing miracles, we journey in the hope of resurrection. And so let's pray together. And as we normally do, when I pray the line, Lord, in your mercy, we can all respond. Hear our prayer. Let's pray. God of hope, be with us as we journey into the future that lies before us. Be with us through your Son who has journeyed in the way of the cross and grant to us grace and faith that we might follow him. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of hope, be with us as we journey into the future that lies before us. In all we face, be near to us and all whom we love, and guard us safe in your presence. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of hope, be with us as we journey into the future that lies before us. Be with those who fear this day and who struggle to see the future. Lead us from the darkness into your light. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of hope, be with us as we journey into the future that lies before us. Be with those who grieve this day and who feel bereft of comfort. In your compassion, be near to them. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God of hope, be with us as we journey into the future that lies before us. In all that is faced by our society today, grant wisdom, insight and understanding to those who are called to govern our nation and to act on our behalf. Lord, in your mercy, Hear our prayer. God of hope, 
be with us as we journey into the future that lies before us. Be with us through your Son, whose journey in the way of the cross yields the hope of the resurrection. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer and hear us as we pray together, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory for ever. Amen. And so may the blessing of God, the ever-present Father, the ever-living Son, the ever-active Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you now and always. Amen.